the best way to do it is just to start. You know, too many people get paralyzed by even wanting to analyze the situation and they start reading tons of books and thinking they need to do tons of stuff. Well, I'm not saying don't do that. But, you know, if you want to learn how to play soccer, you don't read books about how to play soccer. You just go start playing. You know, I was like, amazing. Like, these guys are really impressive. That's really cool. But I thought, why not me? You know, there's a saying that when you start your own business, you will sleep like a baby because you're going to wake up every two hours and cry. Like her wedding vows were actually telling me in front of all of our friends and family that she would. (laughs) But that's what she centered them around. That wasn't like an offhanded comment. We didn't even have an office for a while. And now, just a few short years later, major multi-billion dollar agribusinesses come and make the journey to Sacramento for the sole purpose of coming and visiting us. Paul Shapiro, age 42 years old, coming to you from Sacramento, California at the Better Meat Co. At Better Meat Co. So what is the Better Meat Co.? Well, Austin, you know, let me start from the beginning because, you know, when you think about meat, most people just think about something that tastes really good. However, the planet just isn't getting any bigger. Uh, Humanity's footprint on the planet is getting a lot bigger, but the planet itself isn't getting any bigger. And one of the primary ways that we leave that footprint is really through our food print, principally in the amount of meat that we eat, because it just takes a lot of land, a lot of water, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, and a lot of other resources to raise animals for food compared to just eating plants directly. So the question is, though, like, what can we actually do about it? Because meat demand is going up, not down. Not only is it going up on a per person basis, but it also is going up because human population is growing up. You know, we have now uh, nearly 8 billion of us walking around on the planet. And within the next 30 years, and presuming there isn't some major catastrophe that fails our numbers, we're going to have another couple billion humans added to the planet. And where are we going to get all the land to raise food for those people? You know, we're not going to be farming the moon. We're not going to be farming Mars. We have only one celestial body to farm. The problem is that it's just one of the least efficient ways to feed ourselves is by raising animals because they just take up so many resources to raise and slaughter them. So what we are doing at the Better Meat Co. is trying to create a meat experience for the diner without having to raise animals. It's kind of like if you think about, I don't know, like think about like flicking a light switch on in a room. You know, what you want is the experience of an illuminated room. You aren't thinking about whether it's coming from, let's say, renewable energy or fossil fuels. You just want light. I think the same is so with meat. I think a lot of people would like to have that experience that satisfies their meat tooth, so to speak, like the satiating experience, even if it didn't involve raising and slaughtering animals. And that is what we are trying to accomplish at the Better Meat Co. by using fermentation to create new ingredients that look and taste like animal's meat without having to use the animal at all. So that's why it's the better meat co, because we're not actually (laughs) using actual animal meat. We're using something that's similar that tastes just the same. Yeah, well, because it's better. Imagine if you could enjoy the experience of meat consumption, but with a tiny little sliver of the land and water and greenhouse gas emissions needed with also less saturated fat, less cholesterol, fewer calories, more fiber, and something that was extremely satiating. I mean, to me, that's better meat. That sounds like a dream come true. Yeah. And I'll point out also without the burden of having to raise and slaughter animals. You know, there was a case in Southern California where a group of cows fled and escaped from a slaughterhouse and they walked around residential neighborhoods together. This, of course, caused a lot of news attention. All these cows who had escaped the slaughterhouse and were now temporarily free. 
Well, you know, what do you think people were rooting for? Who do you think they were rooting for? For the cows to be rounded up and sent to slaughter or for these cows who had fled for their lives to actually maintain some semblance of freedom? Of course, nearly everybody is rooting for the cows in that circumstance, even though nearly everybody is also eating beef. Well, I think that is just further evidence that people want meat, not necessarily slaughter. You know, most people eat meat not because animals were slaughtered for it. They eat meat really in spite of that fact. And if we can provide them the meat experience without having to raise animals, I think that a lot of people would be pretty psyched to enjoy that. Well, you said you're in California, right? I am. Yeah. Oh, so Gavin Newsom didn't lock down those cows there? <laughs> you know, the cows amazingly were still wearing masks while they were running around. So I think it was all good. Yeah. Even though they got their corona shot? Yeah. Yeah. They might need a booster by now. I don't know. So what happened to those cows? All of them were rounded up and sent to slaughter, with the exception of one who I believe was sent to an animal sanctuary. So one extremely lucky cow. You think about all the tens of millions of cows who we slaughter each year in the United States, and this one cow really hit the jackpot and went to an animal sanctuary. A sanctuary? So they have cow sanctuaries in California? They have them all over, nearly in every single state. There are sanctuaries where not just cows, but chickens and pigs and turkeys and other farm animals uh, live out their lives. So, yeah, yeah, there's a whole movement of these sanctuaries that you can look up and see. They're actually quite nice places to visit, you know? Like, we have a lot of interactions, let's say, with dogs and cats, but we don't have a lot of interactions with chickens and pigs. And it's kind of nice to hang out with them, honestly. It's cool to, you know, just go see what they're like. Most people, you know, the only time we experience anything with them is when they're on a dinner plate. And it's nice just to see, you know, what these animals are actually like, because they're a lot more interesting than many people might assume. You know, they have personalities, they have like social lives amongst each other. And I find watching animals to be a pretty interesting thing to do. I hope my uh, wife does not listen to this interview because she would be interested in opening up a sanctuary at my house, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, that's really funny. Yeah, actually, interestingly enough, my wife used to work at one of these animal sanctuaries, one of these farm animal sanctuaries. We have yet to turn our own home into one of them, but we have turned it into a sanctuary for at least one dog who we adopted. So we're running our own one animal or one dog sanctuary here. Was your wife rooting for the cows, I imagine? You would imagine correctly. Yeah, for sure. She's a big animal lover, too. I guess part of the reason maybe my wife might want to listen to is she's turned vegan probably within the last year or two. So the reason I eat meat, I mean, it tastes good, but it's really the protein, too, because I feel like it's just too much harder to get in other products. But it sounds like your products at the Better Meat Company, they kind of have everything that's good about, like you said, I guess, regular meat or steak or whatever it is, just without slaughtering the animals, you said? Yeah, well, you know, first let me address the point about our products, and I want to hit the broader point on that. So first and foremost, you know, good for your wife. That's awesome. She should check out my wife's cookbooks. She has got a lot of cool cookbooks on the topic. Hey, I'm half vegan too. She makes me eat it. So. <laughs> awesome. That's <it. laughs> Dude, that's great. So you can check out my wife's cookbooks. Uh, There's like totally self-serving plug for her here, but her name is Tony Okamoto, and uh, you can check out her cookbooks, the latest one of which is called The Friendly Vegan. All right. So on the protein front, you know, so first and foremost, Austin, yeah. So, you know, at the Better Meat Co., the products that we are creating through fermentation, which I'm eager to talk about, but those products have more protein than eggs, more iron than beef, more fiber than oats, more potassium than bananas, and they're just really, really good. They taste really good. So you are getting that protein that you want. Now, on the other hand, I will also just point out that neither you nor I nor anybody you've ever met probably is protein deficient. In fact, nearly all Americans get way more protein than is recommended. 
And so the question then becomes, well, what are we deficient in? Because, you know, unless you're like a bodybuilder, you really don't need to load up on protein. Honestly, it's a myth. Now, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying that you're not deficient in it. Whereas you and pretty much everyone else who you and I know is fiber deficient. So more than 90% of Americans don't get the recommended daily allowance of fiber. And that daily allowance might even be too low anyway. But even the 25 grams or so that we are recommended to get, most people just aren't getting at all. And that's because we don't eat enough plants. So you know, there's no fiber in meat at all. Uh, an animals have skeletons, which hold us up. And that's why we don't have fiber. Fiber is what's in plants to hold them up since they don't have skeletons. So fiber is like the skeleton of the plant that holds them up. And so I always say that, you know, people ask like, oh, you know, where do you get your protein? And it's not an unimportant question, but I think the real question is where do you get your fiber? Because being fiber deficient not only causes things like constipation, but also like colon cancer and all types of other problems. So it's a really critical thing. And what we've done at the Better Meat Co. is create this type of alternative meat that, yes, is packed with protein, but it's also packed with fiber. So you're getting the best of both worlds there. Nice. Well, obviously, you haven't seen my centerfold in Playgirl, or else you would know that I need that protein, Paul. My subscription seems to have run out. I guess I don't know what happened. Okay, well, I'll buy your wife's book, and then you can buy my centerfold, and we'll call it even. <laughs> very good, very good. I can't wait to get it. I imagine it coming in like a brown paper bag at my in, in my mailbox. There you go. That way, your neighbors don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's at least how I envision that it happens. I really don't know what they do. <laughs> well, I'll give another plug for your wife's book. She has a lot of ratings on here too. Yeah, she's, I live in her shadow. Yeah, I need to have her on. Can you bring her in and get you out of here? <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to move over. No, I'm, I'm like the dude who, when we're at a restaurant and somebody recognizes her, they come up and ask me to take their photo with her. So she has an amazing company that she started, actually. So it's pretty fascinating. She started like a blog in her spare time with no revenue whatsoever. And the blog is called Plant Based on a Budget. And then just through revenue generation and bootlegging alone, no venture capital and not spending any of her own money, just, you know, through creating content that people are really interested in. She's now built this into a business where she's got six people working there, too. So it's pretty impressive to see like the life of like what a social media influencer looks like. And if you want to follow her on social media, I'll plug her again. It's at Plant Based on a Budget. Uh, you can go on Instagram and follow her or anywhere else, of course. But anyway, yeah, you should talk to her, man. I'm sure that you would have a lot to chat with her about. Right. Well, the pressure's on. As long as this turns out to be a good interview, then let's do it. <laughs> okay, I'll be her proxy. Yeah. So how big is your company today? So it depends on how you want to define it. But in terms of employees, there are 16 of us working at the Better Miko. I co-founded the company in 2018. And we have built the company into a really interesting and forward-thinking technology company. So if you think about like plant-based meat today, nearly all plant-based meat is made from one of three crops, either wheat, pea, or soy. But it takes a lot to get plants to have the texture of animal flesh. That's because plants and animals are really far apart on the evolutionary tree. So in order to get, let's say, peas to have the texture of animal meat, which is, you know, you think about a, you know, a lot of the products are made from pea protein. So what they do is they, you know, grow a field of peas, they harvest the field of peas, and then they mill it into a flour. But that flour is only about 20% protein or so. So what they do is they remove the fiber, they remove the fat, and they concentrate that down into a pea protein powder. So that's a process called fractionation and isolation. Then you have a pea protein powder, 
but it still doesn't have the texture of meat. So then you subject it to a process that's called twin screw high moisture extrusion, which basically is a fancy way of saying that you apply a lot of pressure and a lot of heat simultaneously, and it changes the molecular structure of the protein so that instead of being globular like plant proteins are, it makes it more stringy like an animal's protein. And now you have an extruded pea protein granule, and you can hydrate that and turn it into things that have a more animal-like texture. However, you know, there's a lot that you have to do, like I just said, to get from the texture of a pea to the texture of animal's meat. There is an entirely other kingdom, though. So it's not just plants and animals. You also have this other kingdom of fungi. And fungi are not in the middle of plants and animals. They are actually much closer to animals. So fungi are so much closer to animals that, like us, they breathe in oxygen and they breathe out CO2. We know plants do the opposite. They breathe in CO2 and breathe out oxygen. Also, fungi are so much more similar to animals and plants that they, like us, have to look for their food and go get it and digest it. Whereas plants, of course, just put themselves in the sun and photosynthesize and that's it. So fungi have a much more meat-like texture than do plants because they are so much closer to animals. And this is why mushrooms have been used in Asian cuisine for centuries as a meat substitute because they just naturally have a more meat-like texture. Well, at the Better Meat Co., what we are doing is we're using microscopic fungi and we subject them to a fermentation process that we have pioneered that converts common ingredients like potatoes into meat-like foods. So what we do is we take potatoes, subject them to this fermentation where our little microscopic fungi are eating the potatoes, and just in the same way that a cow converts grass into a steak, they convert those potatoes into this high-protein meat-like food that we call rhiza. That's R-H-I-Z-A. It's Latin for root. And what it does is it converts all of that in less than one day. So you think about it, it takes more than a year of feeding a cow before the cow gets slaughtered. In our case, we feed our little microscopic fungi the potatoes, and less than one day later, we're harvesting them. And that's because basically, if you think about it, like in nature, in biology, really, like the larger the organism, the slower the replication time. So, you know, it takes a long time for an elephant to make more elephants, takes less time for a human to make more humans, takes even less time for a chicken to make more chickens, and even less for a mouse to make more mice. But when you get down to the microscopic level, it's happening so rapidly, the growth rate is so fast, that you can create this river of mycoprotein, that's M-Y-C-E-O protein, that we can create in hours rather than weeks or months or even years. And so this is a type of protein production that is drastically more efficient than raising animals for food, yet still delivering that same satisfying experience of eating an animal's meat. What if I told you you could be more productive in business and in the bedroom? Well, you probably know that I was talking about our next sponsor, which is Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. When the guys and gals over at Magic Mind sent me their magical elixir a few weeks ago, I won't lie, I was a bit skeptical. But once I took down a shot of Magic Mind, let's just say that A, I got more work done in one hour than I had the entire previous week, and B, my wife said I looked sexier and larger in all the right places, which she was talking about my big brain, of course. See, Magic Mind is a nootropic shot of healthy, natural ingredients that helps you decrease stress, boost blood flow, and keep you focused. Magic Mind was made for smart men and women just like you. Don't just take my word for it. Hear how the guys on Not Another Bachelor podcast are using Magic Mind in their workplace. Get this. As you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I got some people that work for me. I've been getting ready to fire like three guys. And then I discovered magicmind.co. And what I did is I started taking that elixir and I poured in their coffee before we start today. 
whole new employee showing up. I don't need to fire anybody anymore. I got really productive employees kicking ass for me. Profits are up. Have they mentioned the taste of the coffee? They haven't noticed a bit. One of the benefits that isn't even on the bottle. I don't know if you're having a little uh, trouble with the sex life with your spouse. When they're not looking, you pour a little bit of this in their uh, nightly wine or something like that. Next thing you know, they'll be fucking giving you a This isn't any male enhancement or anything like that. What it does is unlocks the supercomputer that is the human brain. It will free up your creative and confident mind when you are in the bedroom. If you wanted to do a whirling dervish, well, now you can. You'll have the creativity and the zen hum that will allow you to execute that flawless maneuver in the bedroom. So if you're ready to race past your competition and satisfy your partner, then try Magic Mind today. Go visit magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code millionaire20 to get 20% off your first order. That's magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code millionaire20. When it comes to your next business read, you do have options. You could pick up that trendy, new buzzwordy business book, or you could learn the timeless, buzzword-free lessons of a straightforward, modern classic. I'm talking about Good Profit by Charles Koch, a CEO with a real-world track record of decade upon decade of actual, exponential business growth. Want the lessons from someone who's actually done it? Start by visiting goodprofitbook.com. That's goodprofitbook.com. So, yeah, you said you use like fungi, right? I mean, so the thing that I was thinking of is mushrooms, and you already kind of said that was a fungi. Is there anything else or maybe, I don't know, anyone who's listening broadly would understand a fungi other than just like, I guess there's mushrooms that we think of? Yeah, sure. So, you know, fungi is a huge kingdom. So they're not plants. They're not animals. They're their own kingdom. And a lot of the times in like colloquial conversation, people think of mushrooms and fungi as being synonymous. But it turns out that actually mushrooms are a part of a fungi's body. So in effect, if you think about it like a fruit tree in the plant world, so mushroom is kind of like the apple on the tree. However, there's an entire other part of this organism that isn't the apple, right? And so 90% of fungi species don't even produce mushrooms at all. So you're talking then about what we see as the mushroom going above like the forest floor, but there's this entire world underneath that mushroom that is called mycelium. And mycelium is kind of like the root structure of the mushroom, and it's packed with protein. And often for many of the species of fungi, it actually has a very meat-like texture when you prepare it in certain ways. So yes, mushrooms are awesome. I love them. I eat them all the time. However, the mycelium is what we at the Better Meat Co. are really going after. So what we do is we take microscopic amounts of fungi and we put them into a liquid state fermentation where we give them the nutrients that they want to eat, again, coming typically from potatoes, and let them consume it and grow up to be, you know, really big and meat-like. And that is how we end up converting these microscopic fungi into foods that really do look and taste like meat. And I'm not just saying like, oh, this is my company, so I say it tastes like meat. I mean, people who eat this say they cannot tell the difference. In fact, there is a local steakhouse here in Sacramento that has served our steak made from our Ryza mycoprotein. And the owner of that steakhouse said that he has never tasted plant-based meat that tasted so convincing. So we are big fanatics for utilizing fungi because I think they can do a lot of good in the world, both for this problem and for many other problems in the world. But we are really excited about mycelium, not just mushrooms. 
Well, you can tell that I did not like biology class because I didn't pay attention to that. (laughs) (laughs) Not to just what you said, but paying attention Uh, to biology class. Well, dude, it's funny you say that because for a long time, for a long time until very recently, actually in biology, to the extent that fungi were taught at all, they were really just taught as part of the plant kingdom. In fact, for a very long time, we thought fungi were plants and we even referred to them as the lower plants, like they were like inferior to plants. Now we've learned that they are just this entirely other kingdom and they're really cool. Oh, so it's not my fault. Maybe I'm just old enough where they taught me that in school. <laughs> yeah, you had a bias against fungi thinking of them as the lower plants. Yeah, it's funny, you know, we have this like desire for hierarchy all the time. In fact, you know, oftentimes in the great ape kingdom, you know, which includes like humans and chimpanzees and gorillas, like we have great apes and lower apes. It's like, what? What happened in evolution that these poor apes, are like these are the lower apes. It's really funny. But I guess it goes back, you know, we used to think like there was like this God, then angels, then humans, then the rest of the animals, then plants and then rocks, like this whole like chain of the great chain of being. Of course, it's very self-serving for us to put ourselves above everybody else. But uh, humans are pretty good at doing that, of selecting ourselves to be like exalted rulers over everybody else and categorizing things in like a hierarchical chain. But anyway, yeah, man, fungi, you should look into them. So a really, really, really awesome movie called Fantastic Fungi, which I recommend where you can learn more all about the ways that fungi can help save the world. Nice. Well, yeah, we're teaching people all about everything today, right? Not even just business. So it's interesting hearing the science behind this. But I think what one thing that you said, which makes me even want to order it now, you're saying the recommendation from a guy who owns a steakhouse. I mean, that might be like you need to be centerfold of your website, you know? Yeah, yeah, it should be. But I'll send you some photos of it. Maybe you can put them on the website of the event at the steakhouse where they're serving this on the menu for a Saturday night dinner where there's his to my knowledge, the first time ever that a steakhouse, maybe anywhere in the world, but certainly in America, to my knowledge, has offered an animal-free steak. And man, it is good. Man, people absolutely love it. Yeah, just say the world. And then if someone sees that, well, then you can say second or third, right? <laughs> Nobody can live correct me here. So I, you know, I feel good just saying it's the first time in the universe this has happened. Oh, there you go. And also, I mean, I'm looking at it. If anyone wanted to try it out before we rewind and hear how you got started with this, I mean, is there a way for people to try this? Because you can't order online, can you? No. So, you know, the Better Miko is a B2B ingredients company. What we do is we make these innovative ingredients through fermentation and we offer them to food companies for them to use either as the basis of their product or to even blend into their meat. So in the same way you have hybrid cars, there is hybrid meat. So as an example, Purdue Farms, the major chicken company, utilizes our ingredients in a product that's called Purdue Chicken Plus. This is a 50% chicken, 50% plant-based nugget that they sell, and it does really well. It looks and tastes just like a conventional chicken nugget. In fact, Purdue's own customers and focus groups say they prefer the taste of the blended nugget to a conventional nugget. And it's now sold in 7,000 grocery stores across the United States. You can get this thing in Walmart and everywhere else. And in fact, the Food Network named it the best tasting frozen chicken nugget in America. So think about that. If the best tasting frozen chicken nugget in America is only half chicken, just imagine how many fewer chickens we would need to raise if all chicken nuggets were blended at a 50% ratio. And these are also a lot healthier. They have more protein than a conventional chicken nugget, but they have less saturated fat, less cholesterol, fewer calories, etc. So we're pretty proud of that partnership with Purdue Farms. And there's lots of other things that we're doing by partnering with burger companies and crab cake companies and more. But you're not going to find a product that on the shelf of a grocery store that says Better Meat Co. on it because we're like an Intel inside. We're helping to power their products with our ingredients, but it's not our brand. 
Well, yeah, I said we we're going to rewind it, but actually I want to ask about the future first. I've heard this on a podcast and I forget which one exactly, but they're just making observations of like things that they think will be weird, like even a hundred years from now that people will look back to today. They're like, it's weird that they do that today versus like, say for instance, like we had segregation in the past or people have cars today versus we, they used to use horses back then. It's so weird to think that. And one of the observations that they said is that they might think it's weird that we eat animals, you know, that, I mean, it is kind of weird. It sounds just normal because you. I don't think a lot of people even think about it, but I mean, how much better off it'd be if we weren't using animals, not just because of, you know, the pollution output on how much it takes to raise an animal and actually eat it. But I think more people are becoming humane about thinking it's not the greatest thing to, you know, just kill cows and just eat them. Yeah, you know, you raised so many interesting points, Austin. So first, you know, it is pretty easy for us to look back and condemn our ancestors for their failings, right? And it's pretty remarkable to think how a blink of an eye ago, historically, like what was the legitimate social debate? So, you know, you're talking about segregation, but think about like 150 years ago in the US, like the legitimate social debate was whether one human ought to be able to own another human being, right? Like you could be a respectable member of society, a doctor, a lawyer, a member of Congress, and hold either side of that view of that debate. You know, 100 years ago, we were debating whether more than half the population even ought to be able to vote. And, you know, if you thought women shouldn't be able to vote, you could still be a respectable member of society. As you point out, like 50 or 60 years ago, we were debating whether whites and blacks even ought to be able to drink out of the same water fountain. And, you know, the list goes on and on of things that today, if you were to hold the wrong view on it, you would become a social pariah rapidly. Like, just imagine trying to go out and publicly say, actually, you know, I don't think women should be able to vote, or I do believe in racial segregation, or I think actually humans to be owned as slaves. You know, you probably lose your job. You would probably lose your friends if you just espoused the wrong side of that debate today. Yet a blink of an eye ago, historically speaking, those were legitimate social views to hold. Yeah. And one second, really, like even now I think about like even like 20 years ago, gay marriage. Right. You yeah. Know? Like that's one extra thing. That, and that was so quick ago, too. So, yeah, it's crazy. Like you said, the 150 years, just even those kind of four topics, how much that's changed. Right, exactly. And, you know, to your point, like 20 years ago, civil unions was like the radically progressive point of view. And now that's the conservative view. <laughs> you know, now like, people just think, oh, no, it should be marriage. Like, what are you talking about? Civil unions. Why do we need something that's like separate but equal? Right. And the thing is that this type of social progress doesn't stop. Our descendants are going to be looking back at us and they might be saying the same things that we say about our ancestors and the type of topics that we're talking about. Like to us, we're like, oh, my God, how could anybody have ever defended slavery or denying women the right to vote and so on? Well, maybe they're going to be saying, how could anybody have justified the types of things that we did to animals? I mean, you know, I don't want to depress anybody, so I'm not going to go too into it. But the way that we treat animals who we raise for food is deplorable. I mean, you look at, for example, if you take just chickens, like you know, nearly all the chickens we raise for food have been genetically selected to grow so big, so fast that most of them can't even take more than a few steps before they collapse underneath their unnatural bulk. They live by wing to wing in their own feces by the tens of thousands inside of windowless warehouses where they suffer in there for weeks on end. And then when it comes time to slaughter them, you know, most people don't want to know what happens. Yeah, you know, it's just like one example of what we do to animals that I think is not going to be smiled upon by our descendants. The question is, like, how do we get from here to there? Because, you know, you pointed out, Austin, well, you know, now we have cars, but we used to use horses, you know, for millennia. The only way we really had to get around that wasn't our own two feet was by exploiting horses. And we forced them to work under punishment of whipping. And now, all of a sudden, at the end of the 19th century, you start having a shift toward cars. And interestingly enough, like if you look at the animal welfare organizations in the 19th century, nearly all of them 
in the United States were trying to get horses better working conditions. They were campaigning for laws to require watering stations for horses. They wanted working hours for them so they could only be worked a certain number of hours a day. They wanted Sabbath days for them so they'd have a day off in the week. And then Henry Ford comes around and totally liberates horses and renders their exploitation completely obsolete. And so Henry Ford did more for horses than animal protectionists ever did. The same is so with whale oil. You know, you think about in the 19th century, basically everybody was lighting their homes with whale oil. There was big concerns about the sustainability of this industry because they were slaughtering so many whales that they were afraid that many species would actually go extinct. Well, you know, the reason whales were liberated from harpoons was not because of sustainability or humane concerns. It's because kerosene was invented and it rendered the exploitation of whales totally obsolete because kerosene was a cheaper and cleaner way to light our homes. Or similarly, you know, the only way we had to write before a long time ago was by using goose quills. And, you know, these poor geese were live plucked for their quills. In fact, Thomas Jefferson was such a prolific writer that this dude had an entire flock of geese solely for the purpose of having them hand plucked live, of having their feathers plucked live so that he could have quills to write all these letters. Well, you know, the reason we stopped this pretty cruel practice wasn't because anybody cared about geese. It's because the metal fountain pen was invented. And so you look at this time and time again, categories where we were treating animals poorly were ended not because anybody was concerned about the animals, but because a new technology came in and rendered the old system obsolete. That is what we are trying to do with factory farming of animals. I wish that more people would be concerned about the plight of animals. That would be fantastic. However, I think that just in the same way that, you know, lots of people were going to put solar panels panels on their roofs when it becomes cheaper than using fossil fuels. And lots of people were going to go to electric cars when the electric cars are actually better than the conventional cars. We need to create renewable types, the equivalent of renewable energy in the meat space. And that is going to mean technologies that will outcompete animal agriculture. And that could be technologies like microbial fermentation, what we are doing at the Better Meat Co. It could also be, you know, turning plants into meat-like foods, just like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat do. It could be using animal cells to actually grow real animal meat from cells rather than from slaughter. I wrote a book on that topic. It's called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. But the point is that there's lots of different technologies that we can utilize to replicate the meat experience without having to raise and slaughter animals. And just in the same way that, you know, the problem of fossil fuels, let's say, is so severe, it's so bad that you want lots of alternatives, right? So you want wind, you want solar, you want geothermal. I think the problem of factory farming is similarly so troubling that we need lots of alternatives, whether, again, it's animal cell culture, microbial fermentation, plant-based proteins, and more. So that's the, really the context in which the Better Meat Co. is placed, I think, in that we are one solution among many to trying to rectify this problem so that we can have dissent and say, hey, I'm so glad that we don't have to do that anymore. In the same way that we'll say, oh, we're so glad we don't have to use quill pens anymore. We don't have to, you know, ride horses around anymore because they were technological innovators in the past times that freed us from those industries. I hope to enable our descendants to say, ah, I'm so glad that we don't have to do that to animals anymore. So you're the Henry Ford of our lifetime? <laughs> I'm a little less anti-Semitic, I hope, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, because you're Jew. Are you Jewish? I see your last name. Yeah, you are correct. Okay, I'm good. All right. Well, yeah, then obviously, hopefully you're not anti-Semitic, especially. <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, it's funny. I mean, I had no clue you much information or even wrote a book on that type of stuff. So I'm glad I even asked about the future that, I mean, I should have assumed that I guess, you know, you had advanced thoughts on that, but thank you for making a lightened point because even like looking at the history, I don't think people even think about that, but it's so easy. Like you said, to look back at history and how things were done and not, you know, project forward of like what advancements there are and people, how people will look at us. So you obviously have a company here that hopefully forward thinking enough, it seems like it has a lot of growth potential that not only hopefully make you money, but then also make the world a better place. So, Yeah, that's the goal. You know, for a, a very long time, it has been quite profitable to destroy the planet. And we're trying to make it profitable to save the planet. You know, that's the basic gist of it. We want to make it profitable to actually save the planet. And I think that the meat companies have a big role to play here. You know, many of them are now dipping their own toes in the alternative protein space. For example, the former CEO of Tyson Foods, while he was CEO, said, you know, if we could grow meat without having to raise animals, why wouldn't we? And I agree. I think that, you know, if you look back, for example, at the film wars of the 1990s, so you had Kodak and you had Canon vying for supremacy of the print film market. They both knew about digital, right? And Kodak was really concerned that digital was going to cannibalize its core business, which was, you know, selling negatives and selling print photos and, you know, all these other ways that were associated with having print photography. Canon thought it would cannibalize for their business, but they still pursued it anyway. And we all know what happened in the end. Kodak went bankrupt and Canon is now the largest manufacturer of digital cameras on the planet. Well, they're still selling us the same thing, right? Like Canon still sells us a way to capture our memories. The experience is the same. It's just a lot more efficient because now we get our photos instantly and we have all types of other benefits associated with digital. But the core technology is still the same. We are having a way to capture our memories. Well, that's what we want to do with meat. And I think what some of the meat companies want to do is sell their customers these high protein satiating foods even if it cannibalizes their core business and reduces the total number of animals we're raising. And so I think there's a lot of meat companies that want to be like the Canon. They don't want to be like the Kodak. And so they are diversifying and seeing themselves less as meat companies and more as protein companies. And so in the future, I think you're going to have not just people associating protein with like a hunk of flesh from a slaughtered animal's body, but rather I think you're going to have protein that people will associate with coming from plants, protein coming from microbial protein sources, protein coming from animal cell culture, protein coming from hybrids of these type of things, like hybrids of plant and animal proteins together. And that I think is going to be the future of having a far more interesting and diverse portfolio of protein from which companies will have to offer all their customers. So when you decided to become a B2B business, was it because you thought it would help, you know, revenue and make it easier versus just building your own brand? Or did you think that it also would, you know, you'd be easier if you could just get someone to partner with like Purdue Farms that your company would spread further and you make more of an impact? Was there multiple reasons that you went the B2B route? Yeah, man, you actually just said both of the reasons and I'll just- Boom, I'm good. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can come work for us, man. No, seriously, here's the- to elaborate on both of the points that you just made. So yes and yes. So first off, you know, you think about the 1848 gold rush, right? You know, it's kind of cliche to say this, but most of the gold rushers didn't make much, but the people who did were the folks who were selling them shovels and pickaxes and so on. And that's really like the B2B approach that we're an ingredient supplier to a lot of these companies because there are now hundreds of startups in the alternative protein space. And like most startups, most of them are going to fail. And so it's really hard to build a brand. It's hard to do all of that, as you know. So if we hedge our bet and sell to a lot of them, hopefully our company will do better. Now, more important to me, though, is that I really think we can have a bigger impact. So when we inked this deal with Purdue Farms, you know, we all of a sudden were helping to reduce Purdue's footprint on the planet. 
And that does a lot more than being in a tiny little swift boat. Like here we were helping to turn a battleship rather than just being like a swift boat trying to compete in the marketplace. And by helping the big food companies use hundreds of thousands of fewer animals, if not millions of fewer animals, while making even better products, I think we get a much bigger impact. And I'll give you an example. So, you know, think about like at Burger King right now. There is an impossible Whopper. I've had it. It's great. I hope other people will get it. It's a really cool thing that Burger King has this. Well, according to news reports, the best selling stores with the impossible Whopper that I've read have about 2% of their burger sales of the impossible Whopper. And you know, good for them. That's big. 2%. That's impressive. However, imagine if at the same time that they're offering the impossible Whopper, they also blended their conventional burger, let's say by 50%, just like Purdue did with his chicken nuggets. So now you've got the regular Whopper that's 50% beef and 50% plant-based. So it's an enhanced burger that's better for you, better for the planet and tastes even better. Then instead of helping to reduce the footprint by 2%, now you're reducing it by more than 50%. And that's the power of being an ingredients company that you can help the companies take their default products and make them much better and have a much bigger impact in terms of what we're trying to do. Because the purpose of the Better Meat Co. is trying to reduce humanity's footprint on the planet. You know, we want Earth to look different from space because of us. You know, raising animals for food is a leading cause of deforestation. So if you think about like, why is the Amazon being deforested? Top reason is because they want land to graze cattle and land to grow food like corn and soy to feed to farm animals. We want the earth to look greener from space because of what we are doing. And so we believe that we can create proteins with a tiny little sliver of the land needed to make those delicious foods than if you were raising whole animals for that purpose. And we can more quickly achieve that by partnering with the big food companies as an ingredient supplier, I think, than by trying to just create our own brand and take you know the years of painstaking work it takes to build that brand. Energetic Austin here, and small business owners know the digital marketing world is constantly evolving. Every change means spending time finding and keeping track of vendors for different projects. That's why you need Anthem Software to be your dedicated partner. Trust me, you need to check them out. Anthem Software provides a whole suite of services, business management software, digital marketing, and consulting, all designed to help your small business grow and thrive against the competition. Anthem Software is the one-stop shop that can take care of lead management, conversion reports, website design, social media marketing, and so much more. This lets you focus on running your business so you can make more money and actually have time to enjoy it. Best of all, Anthem Software will provide unique solutions tailored to your business's specific needs for any size budget and with no long-term contracts. Anthem Software is committed to helping you find, serve, and keep more customers profitably. See for yourself. Visit AnthemSoftware.com to learn more. That's A-N-T-H-E-M Software.com. Do you struggle finding the right book to read or the next audiobook to listen to? You know, there's endless amounts of content today, and you might spend as much time looking for the next book or audiobook as you do actually reading or listening to it. With Scribd, you get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You also get thoughtfully curated editor picks and smart recommendations based on what you've read, which makes choosing your next book that much simpler. You know what I love about Scribd.com? Well, they have an endless entertainment and knowledge, and you can read or listen anytime, anywhere. With Scribd, the world's most fascinating library is at your fingertips, all for just $9.99 a month. 
Explore all your interests in any format with millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You enjoy instant access to Scribd's entire library for less than a cost of a single book. It couldn't be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd.com slash millionaire for your free trial. That's try.scribd.com slash millionaire to get 60 days of Scribd for free. Well, yeah, like I said, it makes sense because I think people get so caught up in like the sexiness of having their own brand, you know, and that, again, you said the chances of you succeeding versus if you're able to, it sounds like obviously the more important thing to you and is really the impact it has on the world than, you know, profits, if you will, which is great. And again, it seems like it made sense how you're able to do that versus just having one brand where another brand might be in it just for profit, you know, and then they don't really have that passion that you do. So it's obviously you're a smart guy. So it sounds like you thought this out, obviously. Contemplated a little bit, but yeah, I mean, am I a smart guy? I don't know. It kind of reminds me of this joke where, you know, I told my parents that I was going to marry somebody of a different belief than the family. And they were very upset. And they said, oh, it's so important to us that you marry somebody who's of the same belief as the family. I said, well, why would I want to marry somebody who also thinks I'm a schmuck? And, you know, I don't really think of myself as that smart. What I do think is that I have surrounded myself with people who are a lot smarter than I am. So, like, if you go to the Better Miko, you're going to find a bunch of brainiacs who really know a lot about microbiology, about fermentation, about food production, and so on. And I think, like, one of the things that I have done right, among many things that I've done wrong in my life, but one of the things that I've done right is surround myself with people who just know a lot more than I do. And think, like, truly, that's, like, one of the secrets of success. Because not only does it help me learn and become a better, smarter person, but that's been my experience is that, you know, just getting people to go in the same direction, like all of us are rowing in the same direction. And we can really make a difference. I really think that. Well, makes sense. Well, why don't we reel back to how you got started with the company or even before that? Is there a best spot for us to get started? Sure. I'll go way back. So I was a kid who really liked animals. And to me, that meant like being a dog lover, right? Uh, my parents had dogs. My mom worked at an animal shelter. And so for me, it was just really love dogs. But then, you know, I saw a video when I was 13 years old. Now, keep in mind, this is like 1993. So, you know, there's no like YouTube, right? This is like a VHS tape that a friend showed me. And for those of your listeners who are too young, a VHS is like a rectangular piece of plastic. You put it in a machine and it shows you videos. So, you know, basically he showed me what happens inside of slaughterhouses and inside of factory farms. And he wasn't showing me this because he was like some animal advocate. He was showing it to me because he was like, oh, dude, this is sick. You know, you got to see this. And, you know, so I watched it and I was shocked. I was like, you know, what if those were my dogs? Like, you know, there's pretty much nothing I wouldn't have done to protect my dogs from that type of cruelty and violence. And so I decided I wanted to become a vegetarian. Now, at that time, I mean, I didn't know anything. I had heard that Einstein was a vegetarian, like in class, but that was like, like pretty much the only thing I really knew. And so I wrote snail mail letters to various organizations asking them for information about vegetarian eating. And they sent me back literature that in the mail that was talking about what I thought was like veganism, right? I was like, what is this vegan stuff? These people are like from Las Vegas. Like, what, what is this? And to me, I thought like it just wasn't possible. I, I kind of thought of it like holding your breath. You know, like you can hold your breath for some time, but if you do it for too long, you'll die. And I thought of this like being so-called vegan. I was like, well, you know, I'm sure you can probably go without animal products for some time, but you'll probably die if you do it for too long. And then I started learning more and reading, and I started reading an interview with Carl Lewis. You remember, Austin, who Carl Lewis was? 
Yeah, he was a sprinter, right? Yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, everybody remembers him for being a sprinter, but he actually has more gold medals for long jump than sprinting. But yeah, he was like, he was like the Usain Bolt of that era, the fastest man on the planet, the most celebrated Olympian. He was an American runner who and track and field athlete who was like a god to me. I had his poster up and I was like just obsessed with Carl Lewis. But he is a terrible singer, though. You saw that. Oh, uh, right? yeah, yeah. If you really want to see someone watch him do national anthem. It was a baseball game or something. He was trying. It wasn't just like a one-off. He was like trying to branch out into like a musical career at that time. So it wasn't just embarrassing. It was actually really sad for him like, musically. It was horrible. People were booing him during the national anthem. It was horrible. But oh, yeah. Sorry for ripping down your hero. <laughs> right? As you're building him up. I had to bring him down. So. Yeah. No, but I, it's an epic clip because if anyone sees it, like you'll recognize it. I only remember that because I saw that clip recently because of the Olympics. You know, it's just like, I think they showed it or they're talking about him and then they showed the clip of that as a joke. But it's like, yeah, it's cringeworthy. But yeah, back to your hero. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It is cringeworthy indeed. But anyway, so, you know, I wasn't cringing back then. I was worshiping this dude. <laughs> and I read an interview in which he talked about how his vegan diet was actually controlled contributing to his athletic success. And, you know, I couldn't believe it. I was like, what, are you kidding me? Like, it's not only that you can survive, you can actually thrive without eating animal products. And you thought it made you faster too? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just <laughs> couldn't believe it. And so interestingly enough, by the side note, if you, you know the brand of plant-based milk, Silk? Yes. You seen that brand? They have Carl Lewis on the package right now. I was like, who knows this dude still? But he's like still apparently famous enough that he is like the spokesperson for Silk for plant-based milk. I, I couldn't believe it. But anyway, so that really helped push me over the edge. And so I decided to take that plunge in 1993 to become vegan. And that led me to, you know, end up essentially working as a lobbyist, as an adult to try to improve the agricultural system. I worked to pass laws relating to agricultural sustainability and the protection of animals. But I came to realize probably around like 2015 or so, I started thinking, I really think that technology is going to be a faster way to achieve this for the reasons that I noted earlier. Yeah, but real quick before we jump to 2015, because we heard you were 1992, 1993, you watched a VHS and then you jumped like, you know, 30 years ahead. I'm, I'm wondering, <laughs> like, yeah, so I mean, were, you were advocate for, it seems like animals, it seems like it makes sense, like even at a young age, how this touched you. But did you go to college and then you said you were... I don't know if you're in Washington, D.C. being an advocate for it. Can you just kind of walk us through quickly what happened after you watched that VHS and became a vegan and kind of the in-between that in 2015? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I did go to college and I basically was working at a variety of places that I thought would be good for animals. So I worked at like a wildlife rehab place. I did other things. I had started an organization to advance animals' interests as well that I ran for a number of years. And then a few years after college, decided that I wanted to get more into the public policy realm. I thought that we could do perhaps more. Rather than just merely raising awareness about what happens to animals, I thought we could pass some laws to help protect them. And so I spent more than a decade seeking to pass laws to help protect animals. And I'm proud of that work. I think it was really important. Uh, we helped to pass a lot of voter-led initiatives to for example, require that farm animals not be locked up in cages where they can't even turn around or extend their whims for their whole lives. So, you know, you think about like, for example, how we treat pigs, I mean, millions of them, uh, literally as we speak right now in the United States and around the world are locked in cages where they can't even turn around. I mean, they're in an Iron Maiden. It's like their own coffin. And they're there not for days or weeks, but for years. They're in these cages where they can stand up, they can lie down, but they can't even turn around. They can't walk anywhere. They're in a cage that's barely larger than the volume of their body, 
And, you know, keep in mind, if you did this to a dog, you know, you'd be charged with felony animal cruelty. But pigs uh, can suffer just like dogs do. In fact, they're even more intelligent than dogs. And yet we subject them to this horror, not because of any legitimate reason. It's just because we can. There's no laws protecting these animals. And so when you don't have any rules, you have a race to the bottom. And so you confine them as closely as you can. But when you confine pigs really, really closely, of course, they're going to fight just like anybody would if you confine them too closely together. And so rather than giving them more space, they just lock them in individual Iron Maidens so that they can't fight with each other. But it looks like rows of parked cars, basically. You can imagine, you know, the pigs go insane. They bite the bars of their cages. They just essentially, eventually just give up. And so I spent a long time trying to ban that type of an inhumane practice. And we did succeed in banning it in a number of states. But in the same way, for example, I was talking earlier about what animal advocates in the 19th century were trying to do for horses and how Henry Ford ended up doing more for them. I really started thinking about food technology, and there was this increasing interest in the idea of growing meat without animals. Now, this is something people have been talking about for a long time. Even in the early 1930s, Winston Churchill was writing about the promise of using cell culture to actually grow animal parts without the whole animal. But in 2015, the first ever company was founded that was intending to commercialize this technology. So you had a couple years prior to that, you had the world's first ever serving of a cultivated burger in London, where a scientist named Mark Post debuted this burger and people ate it. And it was a real beef burger grown from cow cells rather than from cow slaughter. At that time, I was like, wow, like, this is really incredible. This could be the solution. But it was really expensive. There was no commercial activity going on. It was just a, you know, all it was was a basically a science experiment that Sergey Brin from Google had funded. And the burger was like more than $300,000 to make per burger. They made a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's a little expensive. God damn. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, think about that. But, you know, what was the first iPhone? Probably more than a billion dollars to make the very first one. So yeah, it might have been. It's just funny to think about that. I mean, like, it's, I'm not hating on the ability to make the technology, but it's funny that you did it on a per burger basis versus <laughs> like it was millions into research and you finally figured it out. But on a per patty level, it makes it sound, you know, obviously pretty expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was pretty expensive, but there's been like a Moore's Law type effect that's occurred in the last uh, eight years since that happened. And the costs have come down enormously. So now you're talking like about the fact that, for example, in Singapore now, the authorities have actually legalized the sale of this type of cultivated meat. And a company, an American company called Eat Just, the same people who do like Just Egg and Just Mayo, it's a plant-based company. They also now are currently, as we speak, selling cultured chicken nuggets. So in Singapore, you can go out and get real chicken that is grown from chicken sales that didn't harm a single chicken ever. But anyway, you know, just to go back, I'm thinking like in 2013, when this burger was debuted, I was like, wow, that's awesome, but it's really expensive and it's more like an academic experiment. But in 2015, there was a first company then called Memphis Meats that was founded to commercialize this. And I was like, dude, like this is for real. And I thought, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a business person. Like, I don't know how I can contribute to this, but I can write. And so that's why I wrote the book Queen Meat, really to chronicle the entrepreneurs and the investors and the scientists who are now racing to commercialize the world's first real meat grown from animal cells. And that experience of interviewing, it's a, it's a pop side book. It's not, you know, it's not like a heavy technical book. And I got very fortunate with the book, you know, like I didn't know how it would do, but it actually did pretty well. It became a Washington Post bestseller just to like toot the book's horn for a second. It did well. And it led me to consider whether I would do another book on the topic. 
And I was thinking about doing another book on the topic. So instead of a history of cellular agriculture and what's called clean meat or real meat without animals, I was thinking about then doing like a history of like plant-based meat. Like you go back like a thousand years, literally in ancient China, they have like recipes that are still written down from back then of how to grow or how to make like plants taste like meat. And so I was thinking about maybe doing a history of plant-based meat. It was really interesting history. Interestingly enough, piece of trivia, the first person to ever patent a plant-based meat formula in the United States was John Harvey Kellogg of, yes, of Kellogg's, who in 1899 ended up patenting the first ever plant-based meat in the country. So I thought that would be like an interesting thing to do. But eventually, in writing the book, it helped me to realize that many of the people who had started their own companies in the alternative protein space had even less experience than I did. You know, they had very little business experience. They had very little, sometimes they had little scientific background. But they were just passionate about wanting to solve this problem. And they started the company and they hired people who knew more than they did. And I thought, you know, rather than writing about the people who I thought were going to save the world, why not just become one of them myself? And so at that point, I decided in early 2018 to co-found the Better Meat Co. and uh, start pursuing technologies that I thought would contribute to creating a more sustainable food supply. Well, real quick, also before that, you said you're in Washington, D.C., I imagine, if you're trying to get the legislation passed? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So were you born and raised in Washington, D.C.? Yeah. Yeah. I was actually born in D.C. proper. I went to high school and college in D.C. proper. I was like one of the inside the beltway type guys. Okay. And then you're saying only a few years ago, 2018, basically you founded the Better Meat Co. Yeah. Right. right. So yeah, I guess you're about 39 or so. Oh, when I started it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I thought you meant now. I was like, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But when you founded it, because I mean, some people also think, because I'm curious, because you were trying to get laws passed this whole time. I guess luckily you saw that a lot of these other companies didn't have really that much entrepreneur experience either. But there's some people who are listening right now who think that's already too late for them to start their first company, you know? And so how were you able to get over that hurdle? I guess just, again, reading these other people that you're like, if they don't have any experience, I can probably try it too. Yeah, that is shortly the answer. You know, I was looking at, there's a company called Perfect Day, and these guys do a pretty cool thing. They basically make dairy protein without cows. So they make whey protein through microbial fermentation. It's not like a replacement or an alternative to whey. It is actual whey protein without cows. It's really cool. But these dudes who started it had never even met each other. They were in their early 20s. They met in a virtual online chat and decided, hey, we should start a company on this. You fast forward to today, and these guys have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in the last six years since they started the company. And these guys are still in their 20s today. Today, I mean, six years later, they're still in their 20s. And these guys have raised hundreds of millions of dollars or selling great ice creams that have their animal-free dairy protein in them. You know, I was like, amazing. Like, these guys are really impressive. That's really cool. But I thought, why not me? And I totally hear you. You know, I look at a lot of entrepreneurs today who are much younger than I am and they're starting their companies. And, you know, for them, it's maybe like they're it's not as much of a pivot, let's say, for their lifestyle. But for me, you know, I really thought that I could make a difference in this way. And I was actually talking recently with a woman named Kristen Taylor who had worked for like ExxonMobil forever. And then she decided in her 50s to leave to start her own company that would make biodegradable plastics. Like she had worked in plastics for ExxonMobil and then was like, you know, I'm actually going to create my own startup that's going to do biodegradable plastic. And so now in her 50s, she started this company and she's already raised a lot of money. It's pretty impressive. So, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, we all have different chapters in our lives and we write our own stories. And I wanted to write a story in which I was going to try to do the most that I could to help 
address this problem. You know, the planet's on fire, literally. We're raising and slaughtering billions of animals in extremely inhumane conditions. Climate change is only getting worse. And animal agriculture is a big contributor. You know, according to the United Nations, raising animals for food creates more greenhouse gas emissions than the entire transportation sector combined. More than all trains, all cars, all planes, all boats combined. So like this is a really serious problem from so many reasons. And I just didn't want to go the rest of my life doing something that I thought wasn't as likely to make a dent in the problem as what I'm doing now. Well, were you married at the time whenever you made this decision? <laughs> I was with my then girlfriend, who is now my wife. So my recollection of it is like when I started the company, we were not married. And then we got married like some like two and a half years ago or so. Well, were you both in D.C.? Because that's the reason I was bringing that up, because you said you're in Sacramento today, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was in D.C. When we started dating, I was in D.C. and she was in Sacramento and I ended up. Oh, OK. Now we know. Yeah. yeah. Now you get the true story. You get the true story. So. So, yeah, I came out to Sacramento to be with her, but we were only on a month to month lease because I thought, you know, all the... I thought you were going to say month to month relationship. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what I meant. The lease was on our relationship. <laughs> no, we were on a month to month lease because I thought, you know, all these food tech companies are so many of them are based in the Bay Area, right? And it's like the epicenter because they want to be close to the venture capital that's funding them. And so I thought, you know, we'll go to Sacramento and then I'll start this company and we'll have to move to San Francisco to do it. But what became clear to me was that it was actually advantageous to start the company in Sacramento because it was much more affordable, way less overhead than in San Francisco. And there really wasn't a reason like the benefits of being in San Francisco. I just didn't really see them. You know, here we're close to UC Davis. We're close to a lot of the big agriculture companies like Bayer and so on that are located in the Woodland Davis Sacramento region in Northern California. So we could draw on talent from those places. And I just thought, you know, this is a great way to start a company. And what ended up happening was that the dude who we were renting from, who was a retired successful business person himself, ended up becoming one of our first investors. So we were running this company from his living room that we were renting. And he became one of our first investors, really believed in the company. And to this day, he's still serving like really as like a pro bono CFO for us. And so for a variety of reasons, the company got started in Sacramento, and I'm really glad about it because we pay a lot less in rent and everything else out here than if we were in the Bay Area. Well, by investor, did you mean that you just didn't have to pay rent? And so therefore he was an investor? <laughs> well, he put his money in the Better Miko, not in my personal bank account. So we still paid him rent. But I guess there was like some type of a cycle because I was paying myself from the Better Miko and I was paying rent with that money. So kind of, I guess it was almost like that. Because I'm like, I was wondering, I'm like, why is he going to go to California, which isn't really a business friendly state. But then I was thinking in my head, I'm like, oh, it makes sense. If you're thinking, you know, you're trying to start a meat alternative. But then I'm also looking, people might not know, because I, I didn't know, I knew it was kind of close to San Francisco. When I'm looking right now, it says only like an hour and a half, two hour drive. So I'm wondering why more people don't think the way that you do as far as like, that's a pretty quick drive. If you really had to get, you know, go get startup venture that you don't have to live in San Francisco where it is super expensive. Dude, you're hitting the nail on the head. So first off, more companies are thinking like that. More of them are moving out to the Sacramento Davis Woodland area and starting their own food technology companies out here. It's a better place to do it. And I go to the Bay Area maybe a couple times a month and it's literally an $8 bus ride nonstop. 
So I just get on the bus, I work for a couple hours, and I'm in downtown San Francisco. So for me, it's like, why would I ever do that? And my quality of life is like dramatically higher in Sacramento than it is what the same amount of dollars would go for in San Francisco. So I mean, I don't know why anybody is there, honestly, for these companies. I mean, they're just throwing more of their investors' money down the toilet in many ways because it just costs so much more. Like you're talking about way more money on your rent and, and other things, and you can have a better quality of life. So maybe there's reasons that I'm not thinking of that people like to be there. Or maybe they like the social life that they get there. But Sacramento is a pretty awesome place. And you're right. I mean, Austin, it is not a very business friendly state. But if you look at what the food technology companies in California do, they typically have like impossible foods beyond meat, eat just all of them have their R&D corporate headquarters in California. But then they open up manufacturing plants in other places. So in Missouri or Minnesota or Illinois and so on. And so I actually think what's likely for the Better Meat Co. is that we'll maintain our corporate R&D headquarters in Sacramento, but eventually we're going to open up a much larger manufacturing plant and it'll be somewhere else that is a better climate for us. Are you already looking to do that right now? Yeah, we're actually designing our next production plant right now. So we are in the process of building a fermentation plant that will be like the size of an office building. So imagine a fermenter that instead of going up a few stories, goes up maybe like 10 stories. That's what we need to do in order to scale this thing to be able to compete on cost. You know, our goal is not just to create the most succulent, delicious meat alternatives out there, but it's to do it at a price point that's cheaper than meat. And to do that, you got to go big. And that's what we're doing. So we're already building the next plant right now. And we're looking at a variety of states where we could put it. And we have a lot of interest from states and from businesses that want to partner with us. So it'll be a tough choice to make, but we're in a good place right now with it. Who are the finalists? Well, we're being courted by places like Eastern Washington, Idaho, and Nebraska, and one or two others too. But those are the ones that are looking likely like they could be the ones, but we'll see. No decision is yet made, but we're designing the plant right now, and then site selection will come next. How do you decide? Well, you know, we want to be close to the feedstock for our fermentations. So for the same reason why, for example, so many egg-laying chickens and pigs are raised in Iowa, because there's a lot of corn and soy grown in Iowa, right? You know, you want to reduce your transportation costs for your feedstock. We want to be close to whatever our final feedstock is. So if you can imagine potatoes, you know, Washington and eastern Washington and Idaho are where they grow a lot of potatoes. But we are very versatile in our feedstock. So what happens in our fermentations is that we are basically converting starchy foods into high protein foods. And so we can use potatoes, we can use rice, we can use even spent beer brewery grain and more. So there's a lot of different ways that we can make this happen. And we just need to be able to settle on the best fermentation substrate and the best supplier for that substrate. Like you could imagine, as an example, even building a plant directly on top of another plant that is producing that product and then utilizing their output to just pipe it directly into our fermenters. Like it goes beyond integrations, their platform connects you to everyday applications and applies actual human expertise to a robust software that powers your compliance. Leica easily connects to your applications and instantly creates tailored policies based on your business. Then, compliance experts guide you through automated workflows designed to help you conquer certifications like SOC2, HIPAA, and GDPR. Leica is the only compliance platform that offers a true integrated audit solution. No more messy spreadsheets and miscellaneous audit documents. Their team of experts manage your audit from beginning to end with full progress tracking through the app. Like us more than just a one-time solution, maintain 100% confidence in your compliance program with custom monitors and alerts. 
Today, businesses in every industry are under pressure to take a more effective approach to security at an earlier stage. The amount of security risk in technology companies have skyrocketed and attacks have become more sophisticated and complex, just like me. It's hard to unpack requirements when you don't know what they mean and how to apply them in a way that makes sense for your budget and growth stage. Well, guess what? My listeners get 20% off when you join. Just go to heylika.com forward slash millionaire to get your exclusive deal. That's H-E-Y-L-A-I-K-A dot com slash millionaire to request a demo and get 20% off when you sign up with Leica. Since you were talking about like finance early in your first investor, right? That mm -hmm. he was a guy that you're actually renting from. I'm curious because obviously it sounds kind of expensive. Yeah. Did you have a lot of money saved up to start up this company? I mean, obviously you needed some venture money, but I'm just curious, yeah. or maybe that's the 99% majority of it. But I'm just curious, like, how did you personally have enough financial wherewithal to go ahead and move out to Sacramento and start this thing up? Yeah, well, I was fortunate in that the book had done well, and so I had some cushion, but I didn't really put that into the company except that I didn't pay myself at first. So for the first few months, I was working as a volunteer. However, then we started raising capital, and we did a pre-seed round where we raised $1.6 from what I call a friend's family and fool's round. You know, mortality rates for startups are really high, but it's especially high for infant mortality. And so, you know, the people who invest in these really early stage companies are really taking a big risk. And so that's why I call it friends, family, and fools. So we raised $1.6 from just basically my network of people who I was friends with. And you keep saying we, who's we? My co-founders and I. Okay. So how many other co-founders were there? Uh, there were two. And I would say, you know, they were quite useful for a lot of things, but the actual money that was coming into the company was largely coming from people in my social circle, people who were essentially philanthropists in the animal protection space, especially. So people who are accustomed to donating to charity now, you know, they could have a way to invest in the same type of social outcome that they were seeking through their charitable donations. But instead of just getting a tax write-off, they could actually get a potential return on their investment. And so that's really how the company got started. So we raised a little over one and a half million through a pre-seed round. Then after developing our technology, we then went out. And real quick, before oh. developing your technology, I'm curious, um, the yeah. co-founders, how did you find them? Because I'm always curious, you know, people always have issues with that and ask me, how do I find a co-founder or whatever? I'm just curious how you right. were able to do that. You know, one of them, interestingly enough, was a food scientist who I had met through podcasting. He was doing a podcast at that time. He had interviewed me for my book, Queen Meat. And I said to him, I was like, after the interview, I was like, hey, man, I'm interested in starting a company. And this is not, I don't mean like literally minutes after the interview. I mean, months after the interview. I contacted him like, hey, man, I'm interested in starting a company, but I'm looking for like any food technologists who might be interested in that. And lo and behold, he quit his job as a food scientist and ended up, you know, coming to the company. Okay. So after this interview, I have something to look forward to. You might invite me be a co-founder. I'd love to chat about it. But yeah, then also the other co-founder at that time, I met through the Good Food Institute, which is a charity in this space that helps to accelerate the entrepreneurial sector in alternative protein. And the Good Food Institute has an entire database of people who are interested in starting companies and it has their, you, know, you put your credentials in there and you say, I'm looking for a co-founder. So if you go to the Good Food Institute's website, which is just gfi.org, you can get in touch with them and look at their database of all these people who have self-inputted that they're interested. And she was somebody who really had a very prestigious background. I mean, she had like gone to Harvard Business School. She had worked for Bain and Goldman Sachs and so on. And so she had like this experience that I didn't have at all. And 
the three of us decided we were going to all, you know, leave what we were doing behind and come do this. So she ended up quitting Bain to come start this company. And so, you know, it's been quite an interesting ride in the past three and a half years. And I was joking with a colleague of mine that we didn't even have an office for a while, right? And now, just a few short years later, we are running this mycoprotein fermentation plant that is such a marvel, that is so impressive to see that major multi-billion dollar agribusinesses come and make the journey to Sacramento for the sole purpose of coming and visiting us on a regular basis. Like every week, we have these major food companies coming to visit the plant and taste the product. And it just shows like if you build something, they will come. And we built something that is really cool. The technology is really impressive of how you can convert these starchy foods into high protein foods within hours. It's almost like magic. And it's been quite a ride. So after that $1.6 million pre-seed round, we developed the technology and then moved on to do an $8.25 million seed round that did come more from like conventional venture capital for the most part. And now, a year and a half later, we're getting ready to go out and raise our Series A, which is going to be many times more than that, that will enable us to have the capital needed to go out and build a full-scale plant. So rather than just like a demonstration mycoprotein fermentation facility, we will be building something that is gigantic, again, like the size of an office building, where we can create a river of mycoprotein to flow through the food industry and help them reduce their reliance on animals. You know, one thing I just noticed as you're saying all that too, your logo is pretty clever. It's hard to tell until it's big enough. Like if you look at a small icon on there, right? It's actually like a stick, but then you have, I noticed the plant stems kind of as the, I guess normally it'd be the bone in a stick or whatever, <laughs> right? Right, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, pretty that's clever cool. there too. Yeah, thank you. No, I appreciate that. And for, you know, people who are looking to start their own companies, I tell you, you go to 99designs, you can create our logo really well. <laughs> that's what we did. You know, it's like an auction site where artists basically give you for free their designs and then the one that you select is who you pay. And it's only like a couple hundred bucks to do. So I agree. I like the logo a lot. And, you know, it wasn't like we had to go out and hire some agency and pay them thousands of dollars to do it. Right. Yeah. Those are simple little tactics that people kind of forget about. Just, you know, even having a decent logo, like, and obviously I really like yours, but, you know, just getting things started and getting that momentum, it sounds like helped a lot. I mean, what helped you get the momentum, like to even like, keep doing this? Like I understood, I think we all understand like why you wanted to do this and everything, but if it's your first time doing this, like your own business, was it hard to, I don't know, set your schedule, have your own drive to keep doing it? Or like, just tell me what motivated you through this process. <laughs> Yeah, I joke that, you know, there's a saying that when you start your own business, you will sleep like a baby because you're going to wake up every two hours and cry. And that I feel like is true. Like there's just so many challenges or so many things that go wrong, so many problems that arise. And you got to be really motivated to actually make it work because it's really hard to do. And so I think often of what the great philosopher Rocky Balboa said on this topic, where, you know, he said that in life, it's not about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And that is how winning is done. And so that's what I think about. Like, look, there's going to be lots of challenges. You're going to fall down many times. Maybe you're going to fall. Maybe you're going to be pushed down. Either way, you just got to get back up and keep going. And for me, the motivation comes not only from my desire to actually make a dent in this problem that we're trying to solve, that you know we need to be able to sustainably feed humanity into the future without destroying the planet and tormenting animals in the process, but also keep in mind that first round that we did, that's not coming from VC money. That's coming from like my social circle. These are people I'm going to see for the rest of my life, hopefully. 
And so I really don't want to lose their money. I want them to get a good return on their investment. And that is a lot of pressure on me. So there's like the altruistic motive of, of trying to do good in the world. But then there's also the personal <laughs> motive of not wanting to lose my friend's money. I don't want to lose anybody's money, VC or otherwise, needless to say. But, you know, the VCs invest knowing that most of their investments are going to go belly up and they're not going to, you know, be out if we do. But when you're talking about my own like personal friend circle that's investing, it does raise the stakes a little bit. Well, what's the hardest you've been actually hit doing this company? Because we've heard all about like the good things it sounds like so far. What's been some of the biggest hiccups? There have been a lot of them. So, you know, whether it's like people leaving the company, you know, when you're a small company, when people leave, it's a big problem because some people are really important to the mission. And so that takes a lot. Attracting talent is not necessarily like a problem in terms of being able to get them, but it's just that if you want to have like really experienced people with decades of experience, they're oftentimes expecting compensation levels that are just not realistic for startups. You know, in startup land, like you're compensating people, yes, with cash, but also with equity. And not everybody really comprehends that. They don't really understand the value of the equity. Like to them, it's kind of like a bonus as opposed to a core part of their compensation package, which it is. So, right. well, because I'm looking at your team right now, because I'm curious and sorry for cutting off, is because it seems like you have some like PhDs on staff and stuff. Is that what you're talking about? Because they are compensated really well from universities. It's not even just, I don't know, bringing new people out of college or do you include yeah. those people? I am. Well, I would include them all, but I would especially include the people who have decades of experience, whether it's a university or just at really big agriculture companies. As I was saying earlier, like, you know, we draw on talent from places like Bayer and ADM and Zymergen. These are huge multi-billion dollar companies. And so they can afford to pay their scientists quite a lot. Whereas we can only afford to pay a certain amount, but we can give them ownership in the company. And if there's ever a liquidation event, whether an IPO or an acquisition, they'll benefit tremendously. But it's a bet. You know, the whole premise of startup compensation is a bet. You're betting that, you're, yeah, I'm going to take less cash now in the hopes that I'm going to get this big payout later if the company succeeds. That's the whole point of equity in the company. So, you know, I just find that a lot of the times people who are accustomed to more conventional compensation packages think of equity is almost like just like another perk. Like it's kind of like, you know, it's like having vision coverage. Yeah, it's kind of that's nice to have, but it's not like the core thing that you're looking at your compensation. So, you know, that's one thing, you know, equipment breaks. It's really an expensive game that we're in. It's capitally intensive to be in the fermentation space. And so we have had to like beg, borrow and steal essentially to get the equipment that we need. And so uh, I'll give you an example, like, you know, to get like any uh, reasonably sized fermenter in the biotech space, you know, that's a six figure expense. And that's really big for us. That's really hard to do. However, you know, what we do is we go out and buy used equipment and refurbish it to make it work. So that's like been another challenge for us is trying to afford what we're actually doing. You know, we've come this far on such a small amount of money compared to what other companies in the space have because we've essentially bought used equipment or equipment at auction or and so on. And so that's been a challenge as well, just trying to be able to afford what it is that we need. There's other challenges too. Everything from figuring out what the proper parameters of the fermentation need to be. So, you know, you think about like if you're raising, let's say, chickens for food, you know, those chickens have been genetically selected for generations to optimize them for one trait, whether it's producing a lot of eggs or producing a lot of meat. You know, if you go back to the animals from whom we domesticated chickens, 
you know, centuries ago, the Southeast Asian jungle fowl, those birds laid about 12 to 20 eggs per year. Well, today, the modern strains of egg-laying chickens lay around 300 eggs per year. So the egg farmers today can have a much cheaper product because they're benefiting from generations of this type of genetic selection. Well, in our case, we're essentially dealing with wild strains of fungi that aren't domesticated, that don't have generations of work done to optimize them to make them grow the way that we want them to. And so we are essentially engaged in an experiment of domesticating these microscopic strains of fungi. And that is something that's difficult to do. It's time consumptive. And it just, you know, it takes a lot, it takes a lot of resources. So these are some of the challenges that we face. But I will say that even using wild strains that are totally unoptimized, we still get pretty good results. We still get pretty good yields. And so we are thinking like basically what we're doing right now is like the least efficient that will ever be. And as we continue to move on, we will get only better and better. Well, I was just thinking too, I mean, you told me about some of those business struggles. How about personally? What's like the biggest personal hardship you've had to go through? I think people who have left who have been integral to the company. So for example, our co-founder who I mentioned, who was a businesswoman, like when she ended up having like a personal problem in her life that was unrelated to the company, but about a year and a half or so in, she had to leave and she could no longer live in Sacramento. And that was a serious challenge for us. However, you know, we ended up hiring another person who had been a vice president at Goodwill, and she came on and essentially took over this role as our head of operations and has done a stellar job, a truly stellar job for the last couple of years working to, you know, help run the company with me. And so there was a great crisis. I mean, I was like actually going to be going as my parents' 50th wedding anniversary and my wife and I were going to be going on a vacation with them. And then this happened and it was a pretty big crisis for the company. And I just canceled. I, I didn't even go. My wife was like, screw that. I'm going on vacation with them. So she went on vacation without me with them. And that actually makes me think in the three and a half years since I started the company, I haven't gone on vacation one time. You know, people talk about work-life balance and how important it is. And I'm not against that. And by any means, I want people to do what's needed for them. But I don't think we should sugarcoat what the experience is like because, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. And crises come up like that one. And, you know, you have to find ways to make it work. And thankfully, it was all good in the end. We hired somebody who has done a stellar job for the company. But, you know, at that time, like having a co-founder leave who was totally integral to the company. I mean, we only had a few people working there at all. Yeah, that was a, a pretty big crisis for us. Did you have a lot of friends when you moved out to Sacramento? Yeah, I don't know what a lot is, but yeah, I knew a good number of people in the area already, for sure. Right when you were getting started and you come out there, you knew you were about to start the Better Meat Co., right? I did, but I thought we were going to be starting it in San Francisco, honestly. Like, I thought I'm going to move out good month to month with my then girlfriend, just and then probably move to San Francisco and start this company. But living in Sacramento, it ended up becoming clear to me that actually it would be better to do it here. So you missed out on your family time there, right? But have you lost like friendships just like over time, just through having to work so much? And yeah. Just Tell us about that, because that is actually one of my questions is you said the work-life balance, especially when you get started. I don't think there is one, but I was just curious. Yeah. What is that like for you? Are you working weekends? What tell us about your work hours and whatnot? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, first I saw a tweet. I don't remember who it was from, but it was somebody. It might have been from Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator. I'm not sure who said I like telling people that I believe in work-life balance, but I have a hard time recommending to them something that is the opposite of what I did to become successful. You know, you kind of want your competitors to have good work-life balance. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, uh, you know, well, actually, you just want them to have good life balance, no work balance. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about yeah, work. Yeah, that would, yeah, that would be even preferable. Yeah, go hiking. It'll be fun. No, seriously, you know, to answer your question, Austin, like, 
I do work definitely seven days a week, although it isn't all day seven days a week. On the weekends, I do try to do other things. And I have other things in my life that I'm working on. Like the Better Meat Co. is one thing that I'm doing. But I have other projects um, which I'm working that I think are good for the world that I'm doing as well. So I try to spend uh, time on the weekends doing those other projects. I try to spend time with my wife and with our dog. So I'd say, like, generally speaking, a day for me looks like, you know, I might wake up around like 5.45 a.m. I'll like go running or lift for about an hour or so. Then I'll go into work and I'll be there for a while. I don't know, maybe like 10 hours or so. And then come home, take my dog to the park. Uh, You can see there's a lot of like dog related stuff in my life, but take my dog to the park so he can have a good time also. And then come back home and then spend the rest of the evening like either reading or working in some way. And then a lot of the times we're doing business with people like in Asia. And so that means like having to do really early morning calls. And so I literally numerous times have done calls while running. So I like do phone calls with people while I'm out running in order to maximize the time there. Has your wife ever gotten upset with you working too much? You know, I'm very proud to say that she is really accommodating. I mean, she runs her own business, so she understands what it's like. But even in our wedding vows, I'm so proud of this that, you know, most people like in their wedding vows, like the wife's like, oh, I'll be true to you. I love you always. Like her wedding vows were actually telling me in front of all of our friends and family that she would give me the space to be as productive as I wanted to be. And that was what it's, <laughs> you know, very romantic, very romantic. <laughs> but that's what she centered them around. That wasn't like an offhanded comment, like her wedding vows surrounded this entire thing about productivity and giving me the space that I needed for that. So if there ever were a problem, I would just raise the vows and say, hey, remember what you said? Yeah. And then she'd be like, well, you're just not being productive enough. It's your fault. <laughs> yeah. You need to get more efficient. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. You know, it's been a very interesting one. And I guess, do you have any last words of wisdom for anyone who's listening right now who's an entrepreneur? I would only say the following is that many times people don't achieve what they think they want to achieve because they think they can't do it. And the barriers that are on us are usually self-imposed. And so if you want to get involved, then in some, whether you want to do alternative protein or anything else, the best way to do it is just to start. You know, too many people get paralyzed by even wanting to analyze the situation and they start reading tons of books and thinking they need to do tons of stuff. Well, I'm not saying don't do that. But, you know, if you want to learn how to play soccer, you don't read books about how to play soccer. You just go start playing. And I think that's the same in the entrepreneurial world. If you want to learn how to do it, just get started and start doing it. And you you learn from other people. Yeah, maybe go listen to interviews with soccer players, maybe watch what they're doing. But you got to play soccer. And so that's what I would recommend. And if you want to get in touch with a Better Meat Co., if you're interested in more about our work, you can visit us at bettermeat.co. Again, that's bettermeat.co. And if you're interested in my book, Queen Meat, you can buy it anywhere books are sold. But you can also go to the book's website, which is just queenmeat.com. Check that out. I'd love to hear from you. So get in touch with me. Whether you're interested in working with us at the Better Meat Co. or partnering in some other way, I want to hear from you. Yeah. So how about personally, if they want to reach out to you, is it best way through the website contact form or is it another way? Yeah, just go to cleanmeat.com. Again, that's cleanmeat.com. And you can email me from there. I've got my contact info on there. Okay, great. Well, thanks for coming on, Paul. Really appreciate it. Hey, Austin, it's my pleasure. I'm a fan and I'm really honored to be chatting with you. So thanks so much for all you're doing to give a platform for people who want to make a dent in the world in a positive way. Are you looking for more product-based interviews? Well, I got you. Here's five awesome suggestions just for you. Try episode 135 with Jim Kalb of OptiFuse, or an old favorite, episode 24 with Starfire Direct. Another one, try episode 127, that's 127, with Doug Booten, the founder of Halo Top Ice Cream. 
which I'm sure you've seen in your local supermarket. Another oldie but goodie, episode 34 with Don DiCostenza of Pedigo Electric Bikes. And last but not least, the touching story in episode 98 with Anne Head. And hey, while you're exploring our awesome back catalog of episodes, why don't you consider becoming a Patreon member? We've got secret Patreon episodes in the product industry, like Patreon episode number 29, where I interviewed the founder of Fatheads, or Patreon episode 3, where I talked with Rick Martinez about succeeding in the cannabis industry. Just check your notes below on how to get these secret episodes right now.